You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. If you've been listening to this show for any length of time at all, you know that one of my favorite things to talk about is your money and your emotions and the general psychology behind it all. I know that you know the right things to do where your money is concerned, just like I know the right things to do where my money is concerned. And yet, I can tell you without a doubt, we, and that's that's the general we, that includes me, we don't always do them. And so here with us today to give us some quick and dirty tips on being in the right headspace for financial success, we've got fellow podcaster Ellen Hendrickson. And Ellen is the host of the award-winning podcast, Savvy Psychologist. She's also a clinical psychologist at Boston University's Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. And you can find more of her evidence-based, zero-judgment, I love that term, zero-judgment work on Scientific American, Psychology Today, and quickanddirtytips.com. Hey, Ellen, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jean. So tell us just a little bit, for those listeners who are not familiar with your podcast, tell us just a little bit about your show. Sure. Well, the show covers, as the name implies, psychology, mental health, and wellness, and it always has specific, actionable tips. And it's short, like usually about 10 minutes, so it's really easy to listen to on the go. And some recent episodes, for example, have covered topics like how to stop being a control freak, how heartburn meds are linked to dementia, and how ADHD is different for girls and boys. It's always grounded in science. Like you said, there's zero judgment, though you probably will have to suffer through some of my bad jokes. That's okay. I, I, <laughs> I suffered I suffered through my grandfather's bad jokes. I can suffer through anybody's bad awesome. jokes. Good. You know, the psychology of money, as I was sort of alluding to, behavioral finance, it's one of our favorite topics to cover. What surprises you about people's relationships with money? So a, a lot, actually. So I, I love the term behavioral finance. It's it's a term that I came across relatively recently, I'll, I'll admit. I knew behavioral economics, but behavioral finance is such a great term because psychology and money are so tightly wound. It's like you can picture like this DNA strand. They're inseparable. You know, like saving, spending, you know, looking to the future, living for the now, being compulsive or impulsive with money, making good and bad decisions. It is all psychology. And one of the most interesting things I've come across recently is how money drives mindset. And so I'll I'll talk about that by by telling a story about a recent study. And mm-hmm. so this is a study by an eminent psychologist, Dr. Hazel Marcus out of Stanford. And this is a very simple, very elegant study. She divided participants into two groups, one lower income mm-hmm. and one higher income. And so then she showed each participant five pens, just like, you know, the pen, pens you write with, all good quality pens, all identical, same brand, everything the same, except for one thing. 
the majority of the pens, so either three or four out of five, were one color. So in this example, let's let's say they were orange. And then the other one or two of the five were a different color. So let's in this example, let's say they were green. And then the participant was asked to pick one pen. And overwhelmingly, working class folks chose an orange pen, so the pen that was in the majority. And just as overwhelmingly, higher income individuals chose a green pen, so the less common, more unusual pen. And that all seems weird, like why all these pens are equal. The only thing that's different is whether the color is common or unique. And so this may not seem like much, but over this and a lot of other studies like it, what's becoming apparent is that high-income individuals tend to value individualism, uniqueness, choice, while lower-income individuals value interdependence, agreement, and one, one might say community. Mm-hmm. And neither of these things are bad. You know, being your own person, good thing. Being part of a community, good thing. Both good things. Um, but what all these studies together show that as we grow wealthier, we tend to become less interdependent, less connected, more independent. And the other side of independence, the other side of that coin, can be isolation. So like instead of shopping with friends, we sign up for a clothing service. Instead of asking for a ride to the airport, we take an Uber. And so even though, you know, making money and having financial security is important, it's also important not to let it overtake one sense of community. And so in thinking about how money drives mindset, it's important to, you know, certainly save and and try to prosper and to keep an eye on our values and stay rooted in our relationships and community because that is ultimately what's going to make us happy and healthy. Absolutely, totally agree with that. I have two questions. Of course. About the survey that you just talked about. I hadn't seen it before. So the first is when we talk about one variable influencing another, you said that the lower income people were more likely to pick the more common pen. The, The upper income people, the wealthier people were more likely to pick the less common pen. That's right. Did the choosing of the pen have any implication on your earning ability. So, for example, do you think that people should be striving for more individualistic, rarer choices as a way to gain confidence, boost their income? So I don't think I, I don't think the study went into potential. I think it to more, it more took a snapshot of where people were at that moment. Um, and I think that, yeah, absolutely. You're, it's important to remember that certainly we can make our own individual choices. We can strive to achieve. And that the certainly somebody's choice of a pen color, it's not reading the tea leaves. It's not an implication of their future, but again, more of a sign of where they are now. If you have less money, it's important. It, I think it's necessary to be more interdependent and to be able to rely on your family members, your community members. And if, if for people who are better off, they can afford to to not be a part of that social fabric, but it, it happens at their detriment. It, it does. You know, I did a story on the Today Show recently about the interconnection between um, working longer 
and living longer, why working longer is actually good for your finances. And the folks at AgeWave did a study where they said that the isolation that can occur in retirement is as bad for your health as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Absolutely. Which was just amazing to know. I've seen a number of individuals come into the clinic who are about to retire and are terrified of losing their community or their identity. And so it can be a choice. In some cases, you might not want to or have to retire and to continue working in some capacity can be a way to stay connected to that social and professional fabric. I know you've done a a decent amount of work on self-sabotage. And I know that when it comes to our financial lives, many of us do something, and then we wonder, why did I do that? Why did I once again spend $100 on a pair of black pants that were not returnable, that were final sale when I have three pairs already in my closet? What's your definition of self-sabotage, and how does it factor into our finances? Sure. So um, on, on my podcast, when I talked about this, I said, instead of shooting for the stars, sometimes we aim straight for our foot. And so self-sabotage defined is basically any action that gets in the way of achieving our goals. And self-sabotage can be tricky because, you know, it's not a, you know, a pair of black pants. It's not this glorious, dramatic flame out. It's, self-sabotage is usually more like death by a thousand cuts. It's usually these small actions or inactions that get in the way. So, um, so with money, for example, we might have a goal to you know, pay off our debt, pay down student loans, save for a house. But exa- you're exactly right. We self-sabotage by, say, like we shop online when we're upset or we just we justify, you know, YOLO as we put this big purchase on our credit card that we know we can't afford or we spend a windfall in a way that we, we know is frivolous. And this happens for a lot of reasons. And so I'll give you I'll give you three. So one is familiarity. People like to be consistent. Sometimes we would rather be consistent than happy. And so if someone is maybe used to having others make money decisions for them, or the notion of moving between tax brackets seems like moving to another country, it can be oddly comforting to stay, you know, just where you are. And even if it's hard, or even if one is not happy, the devil you know is sometimes preferable to the devil you don't. I've heard that mentioned often in relation to weight. Yes. That sometimes losing the weight makes you uncomfortable in your peer group. Sure. Like what, how am I going to relate to my friends if I match the societal expectations? What, what's going to happen if suddenly I get attention from people I didn't get attention from before? How am I going to handle that? Yes, absolutely. It's the same concept. Okay. What's number two? So number two is, um, is perceived fraudulence. And so you could call this like good old imposter syndrome. So so some folks might feel that they you know, have just no business managing money or maybe even have no business even being successful. We might think that we don't deserve it, that like our work isn't really worth being rewarded. Um, and this is actually really common in successful women. We might think like, what am I doing here? Like some, some mistake was made in letting me in. Like everybody's going to find out that I'm secretly incompetent or inadequate or not good enough. And so when when this mindset occurs, self-sabotage manifests often as either doing as little as possible and hoping no one notices, or maybe pushing hard, you know, going big, but but really stressing that there'll be this reveal at any moment. And so either way, feeling like a fraud is a one-way ticket to like procrastination, to getting distracted, both of which are really common forms of self-sabotage. 
And finally? And the third reason is we often self-sabotage to have a scapegoat. So if things don't work out, we can blame the sabotage instead of some like deeper issue. As we talked about before, sometimes I'll see people who actually have self-sabotaged into not being able to retire, and therefore they can blame their poor planning. But a real issue is they might be scared to retire because their identity or their community is their work, and they really can't bear to lose that, which makes sense. But it's easier to blame lack of planning than to face something as big as losing your identity. So how do you put your finger on what your underlying cause of self-sabotage is, you know, what you're doing if you're not recognizing it yourself, and then how do you stop it? So past predicts future. So you can look at the times in the past where you've felt like, oh, why did I do that? Why did, like, to to inventory uh, your past for the times when you felt like you've gotten in your own way or you've buried your face in your hands and and said, why do I do this? And to try to connect the dots, to see what the common thread among those instances might be. And I'm willing to bet that the root of all those instances of self-sabotage is a fear of failure. And a lot of people think about self-sabotage as a fear of success, but, but really deep down fear of success isn't really a fear of making it big. It's a fear that we try our best and we still don't succeed, that we get you know, publicly humiliated, that we, we give our all and it's still not good enough and we fail. And so that fear of failure is uh, truly the root of, of self-sabotage. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. I mean, one of the things that I've found in the literature, and it helps me myself, that helps me reach for big goals, goals that I am afraid that I won't achieve, is the notion of seeing those goals, of really visualizing them. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. do it with a Pinterest board. I I tend to do it with a photograph of, sure. of you know, I'm a, I'm a chronic um, real estate uh I have a thing for real estate porn. I mean, I'm always in there looking at the listings for places that I think I might day want want to live. But in the back of my mind is always, okay, let's crunch the numbers and figure out can we make it work and let's put this picture on our home screen. I know you're not as huge a believer in visualization. Can you tell me psychologically when it works and when it doesn't? Sure. So so visualization is is actually quite helpful, but it's not the whole story. And so this is this is work by um, a psychologist uh, named Dr. Gabrielle Otengen. And she's at NYU and has done a lot of research on what she has termed mental contrasting. And so she's done studies where study participants visualized a goal. So for example, they've been over several studies, they visualized like a crush falling in love with them. They visualized losing weight. They visualized getting a job if they were unemployed. But, but the more they did that, actually the less likely those things were to come to fruition. So Dr. Otengen tried to figure out why, why is this? And she figured out that when we have positive visualizations, they are idealized versions of our goals that we only picture the end, the reward. And so in our visualization, we forget the struggle or the temptation to spend money elsewhere or the frustration it takes to save or the trial and error. And so when we only have the idealized image in mind, we're not motivated to dig deep or to focus our energy. And so the more positive our our fantasies, the less effort we invest. 
And so instead, she suggests to certainly picture achieving your goal, but also to visualize the obstacles that stand in your way. So for example, if you're, you know, trying to climb the the ladder, you can go ahead and imagine yourself in the corner office, but also visualize spending some late nights on big projects, like working really hard to try to balance life and work, dealing with office politics. And that way, the picture is more realistic. So with, you know, true commitment to these goals, it'll give you the energy it takes to face and overcome the obstacles. Oh, because there are always pros and cons to achieving any goal, whether it's, whether it's a fabulous one or one that you just sort of feel so-so about. Yeah. Um, Ellen, I want to keep talking, but before we do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Ellen Hendrickson. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. If you're looking for another podcast, check out one of our favorites. It's called Reveal. It comes from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal has a team of investigative reporters constantly digging to expose problems that most people know nothing about. These reporters spend weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years getting to the bottom of a story. And along the way, they come across the most intriguing characters. Sometimes they're good guys, sometimes not so good. But by the end, they've revealed what's going on and who's to blame. So check it out. You can find Reveal on your local public radio station or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you download podcasts. We are back with Ellen Hendrickson of the podcast Savvy Psychologist. You know, Ellen, a recurring conversation that we have on Her Money is fighting off the need to be perfect. And on one of your shows, you gave advice on how to feel good about giving up. The, the words giving up, obviously, they have negative connotations. But what do you mean by this? And how do you know when punting is the right thing to do? So yeah, you're absolutely right. In our culture, this idea of giving up is, is so unacceptable. And sometimes we forget that it takes you know maturity and integrity to realize that something is just not working and that a change needs to be made. So so I try to think about it like this. Giving up isn't a failure if it moves you forward. So you could call it lightening your burden. You could call it making a better choice, turning over a new leaf, moving on, rising up, whatever you want. But if it moves you in the direction of your values, it's not a failure. I think sometimes we invest so much in whatever it is, you know, in terms of money or in terms of time, that it, it, it does make it hard to give up. Absolutely. And I'm thinking yes. I'm thinking of the experience that I had getting dressed this morning. I put on as I have many mornings over the last 2 months since I purchased this dress. I put on this gray striped dress that I just I loved in the store. It didn't fit me in the store. I ordered what I thought would be my right size. I got it. I tried it on once. I took it to get shortened so it couldn't go back. 
And every time I've put it on since then, it's been too tight. And I keep it in my closet. It just frustrates the heck out of me. I mean, at this point, I feel you put like a lot of effort into that. Yeah, I put a lot of effort into yeah. this dress, but I I feel like this dress is just a weight, and I need to give up. And it just acknowledge the fact that I have some sort of a sunk cost in this dress that I should just get over and move on. In psychological terms, how do we deal with that? So what you're describing is exactly what's called the sunk cost fallacy. And so that's a term that comes both from psychology and economics, funny enough, and it refers to a decision-making bias that leads us to keep investing more time or money or effort or whatever our resources are into something simply because we've already invested it. So it can be big. It could be something, you know, like a clearly doomed business. We might throw more money, more energy into it, even though it's clear that it's going downhill. Or it could be something smaller. It, like it could be just I, I love your dress example. That's such a great example. It could be even smaller than that. We might force ourselves to finish a soggy sandwich just because we've like paid 10 bucks for it. But like no matter what the scale, like we yeah, we're absolutely we're reliably illogical when it comes to throwing in the towel. So a nice way to think to reframe giving up or the sunk cost is to think about it as letting go. So you can you can channel your inner Elsa, you know, and let let it go. And you can also think about it as knowing when to quit. So there's this quote from Winston Churchill, who allegedly said, you know, never, never, never give up. And it's turned, despite him being British, obviously, it's turned into this very American way of thinking. But it turns out that this quote was taken out of context. And what he really said was, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. And so sometimes... How did we get from that to never, never, never I, give up? I don't know. It, sound, it, it must, have, must have been like a historical game of telephone where we just it just changed as, as the years went by. But his original quote stands to illustrate that sometimes giving in is the more honorable and the more sensible thing to do. And luckily, what happens is all we have to do to get better at this is to get older. How do you deal with the fact that you're sabotaging yourself? So I can give you two ways to deal with the impending self-sabotage. So one is to actually answer the what if questions. So like oftentimes we'll voice our worries with what if questions and like, what if I can't afford college? What if my business fails? And when we say them in our heads, they're meant to be rhetorical. But to stop self-sabotaging or to get over your fear of failure, it helps to actually answer the question. What would you do? How would you cope? Like, who would comfort you? And so, for example, if you are worried about affording college, you could think about how you'd cope if that actually came to pass. So what if I can't afford college? Well, I'd apply for university scholarships. I'd fill out the FAFSA. I'd apply for a Pell Grant. I'd look into local scholarships. And so when you answer the what if worry, you come out the other side with a plan, which lets you breathe a sigh of relief and move forward rather than staying spinning stuck in those worries. That's helpful. Another thing, the second thing you can do is simply to ease up on yourself because our culture is chock full of sentiments like go big or go home. And so when it comes to money, you'd think that setting a really high goal would be motivating, but instead it just opens the door to procrastination or avoidance or things of that nature. So Instead, it helps to set a goal about the process, not the end result. And so it's important to keep it concrete, to keep it as something, a goal that you can check off on a list. You know that you've achieved it. But 
to make it more about how you get there than a big end. My uh, study on money and happiness actually found a very similar thing, that the benchmarks along the way yes. were so much more important than the end goal itself and that people enjoyed the process more than they enjoyed the finish line. Absolutely. So to aim for, for that process, to aim for the experiences like learning, trying, mastering, because if you aim for experience, you can never fail. Plus, you, you come away with really valuable knowledge and you get some really important experiences under your belt. So, for example, instead of this big end goal of like, you know, I don't know, save $20,000 in two years, you can try like change two habits this month that lead to bigger savings. Um, or like instead of like get promoted by May, you could go for like, OK, I'm, I'm going to attend three informational interviews this month. So things like that, that that get you along the road to your goal, but um, can make you feel like you're accomplishing things, you're checking things off on that list as you go. Love that. There was this wonderful study that found that young adults are significantly more likely to engage in the sunk cost fallacy than senior citizens. And that's because younger adults have a stronger, what's called negativity bias, meaning that they weigh negative information like losses or setbacks more heavily than positive information. And so as we get older, by contrast, we generally have this more balanced approach to gains and losses. We, we are more prudent about how we invest our resources, our time. And so we can think about it as wisdom and that sometimes cutting our losses is just the wisest, most mature choice. Well, I'm going to try to be mature and cut the losses where my <laughs> gray-striped dress is concerned. Ellen, thanks so much for being here today. This was really, really good advice, and we look forward to having you back. Absolutely. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for having me on. Sure. Again, the podcast is Savvy Psychologist, and you can find it where? You can find it on iTunes or Stitcher. Fantastic. And we will be back with Kelly and some questions. So Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kelly. Hi, Jean. As we head into our 50th show, we're going to do something a little special. We've been rallying the troops, and by troops, I mean our previous guests, gathering books from the various authors. And mm -hmm. so for our 50th show, we will be doing a 50-book giveaway. We will. And what do we want people to tell us in order to qualify for these books? First of all, we would love to have you share the show. We're going to create a link that you can use to share the show. So that's number one. Number two, we want to hear how this show has impacted your financial lives. So drop us a line on any social media, email us at jeanchatsy.com and tell us how has her money changed your financial life. And hashtag it her money. So hashtag we'll find her it. money. Yep, that would be great. So please reach out. And so many of our guests are incredible authors as well. And we have almost like a library. So we would love to give you some books. Absolutely. Reach out to us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and email us at jeanchatsky.com. So the same place we get all your great questions. Exactly. And speaking of, what do speaking we have today? Of, our first is from Jean Briggs on Twitter. She asks, my two, she writes, my two fifth graders have received gift cards to stores they don't want. Any idea how they can sell them for cash? Absolutely. And by the way, good for you for not just sticking them in the bottom of some drawer. There are a lot of different websites these days where you can sell gift cards online. Off the top of my head, 
gift card granny, card hub, and card pool are three places to look. And might I also suggest, if you have people in your life that you know will actually use these gift cards, this is one time where re-gifting is okay with me. And that's because... If you sell them on the open market, you're not going to get the full value. You'll get the value minus a percentage. That may be perfectly acceptable. But if you give them, you may get greater value. You could also, if you would use those gift cards, say, to buy gifts for other people, people for birthday parties that your kids might go to, you may be willing to give your kids full market value for those gift cards in the form of cash and then spend the money in a way that you'll actually use it. Just a couple of suggestions. Sure. And I'll throw one more option too out there. Raise.com is another marketplace that you can sell, exchange, and maybe even trade. Gift cards. Gift cards. Awesome. Thanks. Our next question is from Donna on Facebook. She writes, Hi, Jean. I listen to your podcast on my long commute to and from work and really enjoy all of the information. Thank you. Question. We are in our current home for eight years, but have bought and sold two prior homes. How long must we hold on to the closing paperwork for the two prior homes? Our first home was sold in 2006, owned for 11 years, and our second home was sold in 2007, owned for less than two years. Thank you for your time. I think you can get rid of it. I mean, the general rule is hold the paperwork for as long as you have the asset. You don't have the asset anymore. And hold the paperwork on anything tax-related for three years if you made money and for seven years if you took a loss. But any way you look at it, any way you slice it, you are past that number of years. So I would say you can, you're can you able to just let it go. With the tax documents, is it safer to keep the actual hard copies or can we make electronic versions and store them electronically? You're fine to make electronic versions and store them electronically. Those hold up as yeah, well. that's okay. fine. Our last question is from Anna. She sent us an email. She writes, Hi, Jean and Kelly. I am a millennial and have a Roth 401k through my employer that I currently contribute 10% of my earnings to, and this does not max out my contribution. I also have a permanent life insurance policy. I'm wondering if and when I should also consider contributing to an IRA. Can you explain the differences and pros and cons? So let's take the permanent life insurance out of the equation for a second. I don't think of permanent life insurance as an asset for retirement. I think of life insurance as something that you buy because you have other people who are depending on your income. And if something were to happen to you, those people would be up a creek without a paddle. That's why you buy life insurance. So if you under those guidelines don't have a need for that insurance, then I would question why you're putting money into it at all. As far as putting money into your work-based retirement plan versus an IRA, I would say continue to just fund the work-based retirement plan until you max it out. Because whether or not you get matching contributions from your employer, it's done automatically. You don't have to do anything except bump up the percentage that you're contributing and the money just comes out of your paycheck, which means you don't see it, you don't touch it, and you don't spend it. If you don't like the options that you're being presented to invest in, okay, then you can put some money in an IRA, but otherwise, I just keep going until you max out. And 
like what you led with, there's no way in which she would financially benefit from the permanent life insurance policy later in life. That would be for her dependents, right? It's a benefit in for like the ones that you love. But like you said, it's not necessarily an asset or should be. No, it is an asset. So permanent life insurance has a cash value in addition to the death benefit. The question is, why did you buy it? I mean, there are permanent life insurance policies. I just did a segment on the Today Show, for example, where permanent life insurance policies are being used to fund long-term care because you buy this insurance policy and then you can use the death benefit to fund your long-term care. And if you don't eat into that death benefit, then the money goes to your heirs if something were to happen to you. As an investment in and of itself, there tend to be investments that give you a better return than life insurance for investment's sake. But we don't have enough information to answer the question about whether or not she actually needs it. And so my advice in this case is look at why you bought it. Just go back and question why you bought it and if it's the best use of your money. Great. Thanks, Jean. Sure. As we transition into our Thrive segment, let me just remind you, you can reach out to us on Twitter, on email, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and send us a question at com. So here's a question for all of you. Do you look forward to going into work every day? Do you feel engaged? If you're among the 32% of American workers who say yes, according to Gallup, then that is fantastic. But if you're one of the many Americans who are feeling checked out, do you know why? A recent analysis by career matching platform Sokanu sheds some light. One common theme among the careers that give people the most satisfaction is autonomy, allowing for creativity and control in your work. And this makes sense. What is surprising is that the careers that didn't require any formal education, were among the happiest. Plus, there isn't much of a correlation between salary level and career satisfaction, which is more evidence that more money doesn't make you more happy. But since many of us spend upwards of 40 hours each week at work, here are three things that you can do to increase your workplace happiness today. Number one, focus on what you do enjoy. Embrace the things that are working well and try to spend more of your working hours on those. Number two, get specific in asking for work-life balance. Don't just tell your boss you want balance because it means different things to different people. Do you want a later start time? Do you want to end earlier? Do you want to work one day a week from home? Get specific and then Ask to try that out. And three, acknowledge your purpose. There is something that you add to your company and the world that's unique. So to discover it, think about what people thank you for at work. Ask your coworkers how you're doing and start a little file of your accomplishments and praises. Changing your view won't happen overnight, but it's always good to start. I want to thank you all so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Dr. Ellen Hendrickson for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. 
We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.